Welcome to the Wellness Pie Shop, where each episode we delve into a different slice of wellness in hopes of nourishing ourselves. With the help of special guests and a little of our own irreverent insight, we'll dive into some of the ingredients that make up the whole of Wellness Pie. We're your hosts, Dina Searden. And I'm Rachel Paez. Thanks for joining us. Now grab a cup of tea, sit back and relax, and enjoy a piece of Wellness Pie. Today on the Wellness Pie Shop, we have Dr. Stella Nelms, a psychologist who works with medically compromised adults. So Stella, why don't you tell us a little bit about what brought you to where you are today? I am 51, African-American woman, psychologist, a mom, wife, a daughter, a sister, friend, caregiver, what brought me here? I don't know. Um, if you asked me if I was going to be here probably 10 years ago, I would have been like, yeah, I don't know about all that. <laughs> you know, you just kind of go with the flow here. Um, so I don't, I don't know how to answer that question. I don't know what brought me here. I guess just, you know, kind of, I, I'm not much of a what's going to happen in five or 10 years kind of girl. I'm kind of more like, a, you know, this feels good. Let's try this. Let's see if it works out. If it doesn't work out, eh, let's try something else. I just kind of, that's kind of how I've been taking life for the past 10 years, I would say. Um, you know, I don't consider myself driven, but yet when there's a task and there's something that I'm interested in, then I drive. So <laughs> it's one of those, you know, but if it's like, if I lose interest, I'm like, yeah, I'm done with that. Let's move on to something else. So, you know, I thought I was always a total line kind of person. In some ways I am. Um, but I really kind of just think I just go to the beat of my own drum a lot of times in life, I'm trying to take myself too seriously. So that probably you, did not answer your question. No, so it, did, it did. It did. It did. Yes. And I have a question now yes. Yes. that I didn't have before, which is, so you said that's been the last 10 years, but you also told us that you're 51. So what was it like before those 10 years? What was it like before those 10 years? So, so say 40 I was just coming into moving to Atlanta from Virginia. Virginia was just not working for me. Um, and I thought we were gonna stay there. And I was working at the VA there um, as a home-based primary care psychologist, going out into the community and seeing patients that were really ill and could come into the VA. So I'd go to their homes. I really liked the work I was doing, but Virginia just did not fit with my, 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 my spouse's lifestyle. So Atlanta, was an opportunity that came up and sounded like not everybody in Georgia is from Georgia, which was really important for me, <laughs> uh, particularly in Atlanta. Um, it was more cosmopolitan. I don't know if that's the word for when people are from all over, but it was, I felt like it was diverse. Let's, let's go with the word diverse um, since that can be used in so many different ways. Um, and so 10 years ago, I was kind of still, I feel like still early in my career, still, still trying to figure out, you know, what I'm doing and, and, you know, do I want to stay in a federal position at the VA? Do I want to do something else? And, and it felt comfortable. So I was kind of in a comfortable state, like, you know, it's, it's VA. I can be here forever. I'll just be comfortable and raise our kids. And, you know, and when we move, you're like, I'll just stay in this job and find a house and just kind of live life, you know, and, and that's kind of where I was. 10 years ago. I'm in such a different place right now, by the way, but that's kind of where I was. And I was kind of coasting at that level. Yeah. I feel like I was just kind of coasting. It was comfortable. It was fine. There was nothing wrong with it. 
is just very different than where I am now. And so where are you now? Where I'm at now, 51, you know, in the middle of menopause, dealing with teenagers, you know, 25 years of marriage, I think that's right, 21 on 25, maybe 26, and a shift in careers, you know, less a shift in my career two years ago, huge shift. So it's like, I didn't see that coming. And it's one of those jobs where you have to be driven. And I just remember telling you I'm not a driven person. So <laughs> that's a whole new thing for me. And it's actually quite exciting. Yeah. So I'm kind of there and I am, I am valuing things that seem really simple, like having fans everywhere I go, because within a second, I turn into a hundred degree temperature and I'm peeling off my clothing. So just having fans nearby has become like a priority in my life. And like, I honor and respect people who were like, Hey, we have a fan nearby. (laughs) So, you know, it's a little, so now I'm like appreciating stuff like that, having a healthy diet, having a regular bowel movement. Like these are things that at 40, I probably didn't take as seriously, but at 51, I'm like, Oh my gosh, did I get seven and a half hours of sleep? Because I don't do well. You know, like it's things like that, that, you know, you're just in a different place. And so that's kind of where I am. There's other places where I am, but that's kind of the <laughs> idea of where I'm at right now. Probably sure there's more there. I, there's always so many layers and so many parts so that make nice. us up, right? It's just yes. crazy. Yes. I think what's interesting to me is that you have a PhD. Therefore, at some point, you had to be committed and driven enough to spend a minimum of five years in school write a dissertation, care about that enough to get that through all the people that you have to have it go, go through and all that stuff. Right. 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 So, yeah, so in terms of new t- dissertation proposal, I mean, just all of that stuff, right. All of that. Yes. That's a lot of work and it, yes. there's no coasting internship. There. You have to apply to there's no intern. You have to apply to internship. You have to apply to postdoc. I mean, it's got to get licensed, which that, that test took me forever to pass because I'm not a good test taker. So yeah, I, I, you're right. I guess I, I guess I didn't see it that way. <laughs> and, and it was funny. My spouse does that. Like he's like, oh my gosh, you've done. So you should. I'm so proud of you. You accomplished. And I'm just kind of like, okay. I thought I was just doing it. Like I, I guess I didn't see it as dry being driven. I just saw it as okay. I want this, so let me do this. And let me go back a little bit. Back like really a little bit. Like when I was, you know, 18, 19, and I went to a college counselor. And I said, I wanted to be a psychologist. And he looked at me and he's like, you're black and you're a woman. I just, you're gonna have a hard time. And I was like, (laughs) you know, and at the time I was like, okay, like what the hell does that mean? And so I didn't do it. I I majored in business. What? Business, I hate business, (laughs) you know? And so I'm like, really, What, what was that? And so I ended up with a undergraduate degree in communications, which actually I switched to communications. I actually enjoyed it because as you can tell, I love to talk. And so this, this worked for me, but that's not what I wanted to do. And then what do you, it's like getting a degree in philosophy. What do you do with a degree in communication? Like, honestly. I don't know. I have a degree exactly. in English undergrad. So, you know, I became and a social And so you and I both <laughs> do understand how but this we has benefited us a lot. We can communicate. Right. Yeah. I can we put can. two sentences together in writing and you can communicate. Can. There you go. 
Hey, it got me, it got us in the, got us in the graduate school at some point. So, you know, I, I, I guess we can take some of the benefit out of that, but yeah, that's what I was told. So I kind of, went, Oh, and by the way, wow. I got an F in my first class in psychology. Wow. I love, I honestly, I love that. I love that because I think, <laughs> well, I think it's like one of those things don't where tell my patients. Don't tell my patients that. <laughs> no, if I was your patient, I would want to know that. And the reason is, is because it makes you human. Yes. It, it removes you from being this super successful PhD woman and it makes you a human. And I think sometimes in the field, we can lack humanness. And yes. so if I was your client and you said, you know what? I failed. I'd be like, thank you. I needed to hear that. And here I am. <laughs> because if you had told me that you had gotten straight A's as somebody who failed at a high school, I would have been like, oh, there's nothing that you don't see value in me because I failed and you never did. Um, I have like so much, so many questions. So I'm going to, I'm going to start with, hmm, where do I want to start? How about starting at the beginning, which is you wanted to get your degree in psychology. You wanted to be a psychologist. What, what was it about being a psychologist? What values did you have that said, Hey, I feel like this is who I am. I'm going to be a psychologist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, and I have to say that I had so many instances in my life where people confided in me, you know, growing up and in my early years in life. I, and so I always felt just kind of connected with people's stories. I'm very much a kind of, I don't kind of follow the crowd. I kind of do my own thing, but I love watching human behavior. My dad um, is a vet actually, he was in the military and my um, last last two years of high school, he really struggled with the transition from being active military since he was 17 mm. to coming out and, and now what do you do? I mean, he worked on airplanes. You know, how do you transition from that life where everything was provided for you, housing and everything was a security, medical care, and then, you know, you retire and then, you know, and he was only in his forties when he retired. You know, I think that, that like, oh my God, it seemed so old at the time. And now I'm like, no, it wasn't. <laughs> but could you imagine like coming out of that field at four, and then like, and then no one, no, no guidance, like no sense of any guidance, you know, I mean, he got a degree when he was in the military, but he had to stay in the military with that degree. So I didn't really use that degree. And so I saw him really struggle with just that transition. And I, and, and to, to the detriment of, his, of, of our family and our finance, I mean, everything. And so I saw that. And I think between that and watching what my mom did and raising us um, at the, you know, at the age of 18, when I was ready to kind of go off and do my thing. And then this all happened. And, and my mom really kind of just carrying the load and just and, and parenting the best that she could with, with the parent with a partner who was incapable of parenting anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, my sister is nine years younger than me, so she still obviously needed a parent. Um, so watching all, I think that, and you know, it's funny because it's so cliche to say that psychologists have to go through trauma and want to come back and do this work. I wasn't through any trauma. I mean, my dad had a rough time. My parents, my mom got it together, took care of us. We weren't homeless and stuff, you know, it was like, it just, it, it, there was no major trauma in my life where I'm like, well, I'm going to go take care of others now. It was like, I kind of had all these little bits and things and pieces in my life that kind of led me to, 
this field just feels right. Like being able to, I mean, there's a lot of ways to help people. I mean, initially I wanted to be a physical therapist. So the idea of just working with people just seemed to fit comfortably for me. And I think my first job out of high school, when I was in college part-time, I was working um, at a dialysis center. I was a reuse technician and it is quite a disgusting job now that I reflect a on what it. what technician? Technicians? So people who are in kidney dialysis, I don't know how kidney dialysis works now, but in 19, I'm going to graduate from high school, 88. So 1990, the way that kidney dialysis used, you had this plastic, plastic tube and you attach it to a person who has a port in their arm. Their blood comes out of the port. It gets filtered because their kidneys aren't able to do the work through this tube, this fibrous tube. And then it goes back into the person's body. The process takes about three, four hours. I cleaned out the tubes. Mm-hmm. on this machine. So I cleaned out people's blood, cleaned these machines out, bleached out these fibrous tubes and filled them up with formaldehyde. And they were, be able, they were reused for about nine and 10 times and then we threw them away. And each person, patient had their own tube. And after amount of times using it, it got to the point where it was no longer usable. So I did that for a couple of years while I was in college. So I worked wow. with nurses. I was kind of around, and my mom, uh, uh, drew blood. She was a, a, a technician as well. A reuse tech, not reuse, she was a dialysis technician. She was a phlebotomist. So she just kind of, just, that's just what she did. And being in the military, she was never able to keep a full-time job, you know, so she would, you know, raise us and then get jobs here and there where we were stationed somewhere. And she typically worked in hospital settings. And so I got, that was my first job really. And when I was in college, I did that. And then I did customer service. And I always, I did horrible because People would tell me their stories and I'd want to listen to them. They're like, get off the fucking phone. You know, and they're like, my husband left me. I'm like, oh my gosh, tell me more about that. And then I just, it just, it just was a natural thing for me to go there. And I just knew this is what I wanted to do. And then when that person told me that, you know, no, that's, that's just not going to happen as a black woman. I was like, okay. And I couldn't believe that shit. And then I stepped back and I'm like, well, maybe this is going to be hard. I'm not, I'm not the strongest in math and science. I even though I love science. This, I didn't do really well in math classes. I did very average C grades. And so I'm thinking, well, there's no way I'm going to pass a statistics course, you know? So I talked myself out of it after this person told me that it was going to be almost impossible for me to get through this, looking at my math grades, looking at my color, whatever he wanted to look at. And so I believed it for a hot minute, went and got a degree in something I didn't want to, and then came out and I'm like, I want to go back to school. I'm like, of course I do and do this because this still fits for me. It was still pulling at me at that point. Even when I was done with the four years of college, I was like, this is still pulling at me. This is something that I want to do. So what a story. I, I, I just, my blood boils listening to this. And, you know, by 1990, I was being older even than you. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just, it, it stuns me that you were being told as a black woman, you couldn't be a psychologist because it just wouldn't happen. And I, it's appalling and it makes my blood boil. And, you know, I'm just so sorry you ever had to go through that, but I'm so glad that you didn't listen. I think you touch on something that's like really, um, really important because you, we talk about the whole podcast is about living your life aligned with your values and, and how you know that you're not living a life of your values. And your story is very much that you knew you wanted to do this. It was exactly what you wanted to do. Society told you that you were not going to be able to do it. And you still 
reached in and was like, this is what I need to do. This is what my core, my existence, my values are telling me to do. And I'm going to do it anyway. And that's really hard to, that's really hard. And honestly, it takes people sometimes their entire lives to realize that they did not make a choice that was aligned with their values. And that choice then was their entire trajectory of their future. And I just really applaud you for that because it could not have been easy to be like that little critic in your voice telling you, oh, this person told me not to do it. And yet you still um, were a driven person (laughs) and went into what, what felt aligned with you. And I'm curious to know if that trait is something that you kind of had throughout your own, like your whole life was just this, like, I'm, I mean, you said you like beat, you know, you walked to the beat of your own drum. Is that your whole life that you kind of were just confident in what you wanted? That's a good question. I, I, I guess I've never looked or reflected back on my life in that way, but I can think of instances where that stood out, you know, and, and I think that I, I think about my mom I think I, I have one experience with my mom that I will to this day sticks with me. I went to a very small school in Alaska and um, it was really, really small and it was primarily Caucasian and I wanted to be a cheerleader. It was just what I wanted. It just looked fun. You got to go on trips and it just looked fun and it fit with my energy level. So it's what I wanted to do. And when you live in Alaska, if you're not involved in any kind of sports, then you are just bored out of your out of your mind. There's just nothing to do, particularly during the winter months. And, and these were sports that were available during the winter months for us, like basketball, that kind of thing. And so I remember trying out and um, and practicing and pra- like I had all the practices. I mean, I I learned every splits, all the things I learned. And I went into that tryout and I gave it at all, gave it my all didn't get in. That was football, basketball, same thing, gave it off, nothing, did it for two, two, three, two, two and a half years. So trying out for every sport. So two or three, two or three tryouts every year, never getting in. And I remember coming home and just being really frustrated. And I was telling my mom and she's like, she goes, you really put a lot into this. And she's like, you know, what's happening? I says, I don't know. And I I says, it's just, it's just frustrating. And I feel like the same people always get to be cheerleaders, like the same people, each sport, the same girls. And it didn't occur to me at the time that, you know, the same girls all look the same color. And it just never clicked because my parents, you know, although they raised me, you know, and the way that, you know, you look different and people might treat you differently, but, you know, you're, you're a good person and, you know, and, and you're, you know, you're, you're no different than anyone else kind of attitude, but like we do with our children, we, we want to protect them and shield them from the nasty stuff. And so I didn't come in there thinking, well, they didn't do it because I was like, there was never any of that, but anyhow, apparently another tryout was coming and it was my, my junior year and it was for basketball and <clears throat> no, I'm sorry, it was for football. And my mom showed up at the tryout. I had no idea. She showed up at the tryout and it turns out they had the same judges every time who were Caucasian. They had the same cheerleaders every time with Caucasian. The cheerleading coach was Caucasian. And um, there was a tryout where there were 
by this time in my junior year, there were more African-American girls in the school and they had tried out. So there was, I would say there was like 20 girls trying out, about seven of them were African-American and about, you know, the other, you know, 13 were Caucasian and they had to pick seven girls, all seven of the white girls got. And so it was, it was one of those things where my mom's watching and she's like, okay, I'm not a professional it's like at, at, at um, cheerleading, but something looks wrong here. So decided to talk to the head cheerleading coach, Miss Plaxico, I can remember her name. And she has a conversation. I wasn't even privy to any of this, okay? So the conversation resulted in her saying, my mom saying, I'm just concerned. I think that there needs to be some diversity in the coaches. I mean, the, um, the selection team, some diversity in the selection team of these people that you selected. They're the, always the same people. I think there should be some diversity. So it wasn't like you need to make my daughter a cheerleader because she wants to be, or, you know, it was like, I think you need some diversity in the people that are selecting these. You pick the same people every time and the same cheerleaders get it every time. There's never any slots or any opportunities for any of the girls that try out. And the lady said to my mom, well, what are you saying? Like, I, I, I grew up with a black mammy and there's no way that I would, I would be discriminatory. My mom was like, and that's all you had to say. <laughs> End of the conversation right there. Went to the principal and just said, I'm encouraging to get a diverse group of people to pick cheerleaders. That's all I'm asked. When she realized she could not have a conversation because a black mammy conversation came up and my mom knew right then and there and they got, they, they had a read, they redid the whole selection process. Everyone tried out again. They had a new selection committee. Three of the seven girls um, uh, got onto the team who were African-American. So it was a very diverse group of women. One young lady was um, were Filipino. So it was a diverse group but they had a diverse group and different judges and they decided to swap out the judges each time and then they changed the system, you know? And so I was able to see all that happen. And my mom, when she told me about the conversation she had after I got on the team, I was like, what? <laughs> it's a black man, what does that have to do with anything? She goes, I think she thought that I was questioning that, you know? And then she goes, and I was really more thinking like, really we should have some diversity because it's a diverse student population. It should be a diverse selection. And so from that experience, it's one of those things where, you know, I'm like, wow, that took a lot. And my mom has had other experiences where she had to go into school and pretty much shut people down on how I was being treated because of my color. You know, we, I went to, we, we, were, about, we were stationed in Valdosta, Georgia for a couple of years and had some interesting experiences there. Mm. Some of them I'm, I remember and some I don't. My mom was in the background managing that and, and calling people out on their shit. And, and she just had to do that as a parent, unfortunately. So, you know, kind of watching that was one of those things. If I have any drive or any, I, I, I credit her on that. I, I don't, it's hard for me to see it for myself, but I credit her on watching her and how she navigated a lot of bullshit, <laughs> fortunately. Yeah. That is really powerful. And your mom sounds like an amazing woman. She is. I wonder if you picked that up from your mom in terms of she was a real mama bear, wasn't she? Yes. She's going to make sure that her girls are treated right. Mm -hmm. And do you feel like that value has translated to you? Is, do you have that towards your boys? So I do. I mean, I, I, I haven't had to as much. And that's, that's one of the things. I mean, and I, not that I haven't been visually keeping out, watching stuff like that, but I haven't had to. 
you know, and, and I've, we've had options on schools that we pick and making sure they're diverse. And we had options in, you know, if I wanted a tutor, if I wanted a woman, or if I wanted someone who was black or gay to make sure my child realizes that is, he's just not in his own little heterosexual male black head, that there are people that are different than him. So I live in a neighborhood that's very diverse. So, um, and, and, and always, every way that, that that's, that's humanly possible, I feel like. So um, I have not had to, and, and that's nice, right? We want that. We want things to get to a point where, I mean, because granted my mom's mom had to deal with different issues, you know, when she was raising six kids in Chicago and the projects, and she had to deal with, I'm sure, challenges in that arena. <clears throat> and then my mom had hers where, you know, maybe not as much, but more institutionalized type issues that she had. The schools were the big ones for myself, my sister who had ADHD and had and had to have, make sure she had a lot of services for herself. And my mom had to advocate for her and make sure teachers who were not skilled in that area or weren't treating, you know, or, or doing well in terms of providing the service that she needed. She had to advocate for her to make sure she got what she needed in order for her to do well in school. So I feel like, you know, we're at a point now where it's not that we still don't need to do that for our kids. And in ways we do, I mean, I had to go in and, and help my kid when he was really struggling in school and had a teacher who's just really insensitive. And, um, and he was a very sensitive child and she would make a comment to him and he would just take it and he'd just be like, oh my gosh. And so I had to make sure that, you know, we sat and talked and was like, hey, you know, let's make sure we work together to help my kid. But right now the way you're working, handling him is not working. So I have to advocate my kids in, in a lot of ways as well. And I got a lot of my mom and really just kind of recognizing, you know, what their needs are and making sure, Hey, we're in a public school system. I mean, I respect our teachers, but you know, I'm noticing my kid comes to your class and he's breaking down. So clearly something's happening here. So let's figure out what that is. And do I need to move them out of your classroom if that's, if that's the case? Or do we need to work on your issues? <laughs> do you need to be doing that? Do you need to here's be doing my card. That? Is, oh, right, here, right, here's my card. Or do I need to check my kid? You know, and so, um, so I've had to do that um, again, you know, in, in different, you know, different arenas, whereas my mom had to deal with other issues and, and her mom's mom probably didn't deal with it as well. So there are, two things that keep popping up in the, in the conversation that we have been having. And I'm, I'm going to ask you if they are values, because the way you talk about them, I don't even think you recognize it. Diversity and advocacy are two things that you have, have been very, very prevalent in your life from your grandmothers, which you talked about, and then your mom, and then you, Am I right to think that those are two very large, I'm going to use the word driving forces for what kind of keeps you in the field that you are and becoming who you are as this person who strives for advocacy and diversity? You know, I, I hadn't seen it that way. You pulled that out of that. So that's good. Cause I, I guess I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I hadn't envisioned it that way, but you know, I, when I think about advocacy, I, I think about like self you know, advocating for myself. Um, I am really, really big, really, really big. And then I think about it and you put it out there when I work with my patients, them advocating for themselves. I mean, I work with people with serious chronic illnesses and, um, and going to doctors and having to ask for medication or assistance is is very difficult and challenging. And I have a large population of women, particularly women of color, um, and really struggle with 
you know, perceptions of what that looks like to providers that are typically male and typically Caucasian, unfortunately, and that they have to interface with and it makes it hard for them to, to kind of figure out, you know, how to navigate that world. And so oftentimes they're, they're just like, they just try to be compliant and they don't speak up. And I'm kind of like, you know, let's find your voice. Let's find a way to communicate to this provider. And I'm always looking for providers that are diverse so that there's a mixture there. I'm not against white male doctors, not so bad, <laughs> I have some. I'm not against that, but, but as a woman who has sickle cell anemia, who comes into the ER and every doctor walking in the room is Caucasian and in their 30s and 40s and asking you about what medications are you taking and are you taking more than you should? And that happens on an ongoing basis because you've been in the ER four or five times for a crisis. And someone who might not understand what it must be like to be a woman of color and, be a, and, and there being some slight assumptions that you're an addict and that you're drug seeking. You know, so it's things like that, 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 that definitely just kind of raise my blood pressure. If it isn't already, you can already tell I'm getting a little hyper over it. Um, and I really think about this idea of advocacy and the importance of diversity in this field and this medical field and the mental health field and, and fields where we are, we are caregivers and supporters of people who have challenges. I find that extremely important that we are in this area. I'm glad that I, that I pushed through this idea of you can't be a psychologist because you're black. Um, because, you know, I want to be in this field. I want to train others who, who want to do this. And if anyone ever tell them that you can't do this because you're dyslexic or because you're disabled or because you're of color or you're Muslim or whatever it is, it's like bullshit, bullshit. You're, you have something to offer somebody. If you take this work seriously and you take this study seriously, you have something to offer somebody. So yeah, I guess you put it out there. I guess I do take diversity because you know, I never really saw it that way. I mean, it's just in everything that you speak from, from the way you talk about your mom and the way that you, those were her values. If, if you did, you know, in those stories that you were telling, those were her values was advocating for you, advocating for diversity. And then it is no wonder that that is exactly how you turned out because that's what you're speaking. You're speaking about giving voices to people and making sure that those voices are, they stretch above just a white male world that we live in. And yeah, I just, like I said, I was just curious if those were kind of your values. Cause that's, it just comes off of you. Like every time you speak, when you speak, like you just said, like you were getting hyper over it to me, that's how I know that I have a value is like, if it's just when I'm speaking about it, it, makes me just kind of get really tight, but in like a good way and like an excited yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I also love the way that your advocacy plays out for your sons because you give them upfront what you never had, which is mm -hmm. you live in a diverse area. You want to make sure that it's a diverse high school. You keep an eye on the teachers who are maybe coming down a little bit hard on your sons. And so yes, it's different than what your mom had to do because you set it up that way. Mm -hmm. So the mm -hmm. challenges that they're facing are going to be necessarily different than the ones that you were, that you had to face because you're, you've already put that, I don't want to say parameter, mm -hmm. but you've already supported them to that point. Right. And I exactly. think that's, that's wonderful and amazing. And especially, you know, I don't know, I, I, in this day and age, it would be terrifying to me to be raising two black boys.
and it still is. And mm. I have one that drives and, you know, <laughs> what do you do with that? You know, we sit down, we have conversations and they're like, oh my, you know, and the 16 year old thinks I have no idea what I'm talking about. I, I know he listens. My mom's like, he listens still. I'm like, I <laughs> he's in this phase where I just know nothing. And you um, don't, you know, and I mom. don't, I really yeah. don't. I, <laughs> Which is so um, funny. Cause I know, you know, so much. And so I think that that's funny, but I was also, I wasn't that, I was that teenager. Yeah. I mean, I was a 16 year old, not very long ago, you know, like you're talking about the 10 years ago, I was 16, 10 years ago. So can I just say, I hate the teenagers. I was going to send my kids out there when I, when they got to be teenagers, you tell me I can't do that. (laughs) Every kid's different. Every Every kid's Every my mom said, Stella, you were just a breeze. And then your sister came and it was like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Every kid's just different. Every know? kid's different. And I could say, you know, like because you were a breeze, maybe your sister couldn't be the breeze. You know, she's gotta had to go there somewhere. Gotta go there somewhere. Gotta go there somewhere. <laughs> my brothers were easy. I was not. My parents couldn't get off, you know. Yep, yep, there you go. <laughs> But we were talking about, you know, having to have those conversations with your sons and I imagine your husband must also have them. Oh gosh. Yeah. Right. I he's, mean, he's more hyper than I am. He's from Chicago. So he's got that. Yeah. He's very hyper about all that stuff. You know, I, I'm not, it's not that I'm not, I just, I have a different approach. We have different approaches. I think we balance each other out. And, you know, sometimes he's like, you need to take this serious though. And sometimes I'm like, you need to chill the fuck out. You know, so I think that that, <laughs> That that kind of makes it that it's been 25, 26. I gotta figure out that what that number is. Which is congratulations. Wow, that's that's awesome. It's a long time. I, yeah, I, you know, I find that we have to teach our kids things, but that are really important. Mm-hmm. But that balance between you need to know that this is no joke, and yet you can't be afraid. You have to right. approach the world without fear and right. get throwing them into a state of anxiety is so easy. Right. And I already have a kid that has anxiety. So it's like, okay, how do we have this balance, man? It's not easy, not easy. You know, I mean, when the whole um, storming of the Capitol craziness was happening, my husband like called them and marched them down and sat them from the TV for like five minutes. He's like, look at this, look at this. crazy! I don't want you to see what privilege. I mean, he just kind of, and you know, the 14 year old like, like, okay, whatever, you know, and, and it, you know, the 18 year old was like, well, this is kind of messed up. And, um, and they didn't really have much to say. And I said, you know, he's like, do you have any questions? What do you have to say about it? I'm like, oh, <laughs> it's just, you know, <laughs> typical response. <laughs> not, not surprising for people who've had teenagers. Um, and, but that was important for them. And it was, and it, and it sucked, it hurt to, to watch all that happening, but they needed to see it. I'm like, I'm sure you probably are not watching the news and, and they get that information. They get it from school, they get it from their friends, they get it, but they need to hear it from us. They need to hear it from their parents. Like that's important. We don't want them just getting, you know, the shootings and all the things that have happened in the world and all the other things that have happened that are, that have been devastating this world from media sources. You need to hear from what your parents are thinking, what you're feeling about it, you know? So, you know, my husband's like, you know, this makes me angry. It makes me sad this is happening. And I said the same thing. And they need to, they need to hear that, you know, these things impact us as adults. You're going to be an adult one day. You're going to be impacted by these things. So, um, so yeah, we, we, unfortunately the past, gosh, let's go with just year <laughs> to have these conversations. 
I mean, we can go back a ways, but I'm just saying how the year has been enough as it is. Yeah. And I think about that. And again, what you said was you and your husband talk about, this is what you're going to face. I'm angry and I'm sad. What I didn't hear was I'm afraid. No. So nope. you're shaping your, your, your children to not fear. And I think that's so healthy that, yeah, you, you should be aware of it. And it is infuriating mm -hmm. and it is sad, mm -hmm. but you don't have to be afraid of it. No. Yeah. No. I also think another thing is, is like sometimes, and I'm not a parent, I have animals, but I'm not a parent, but from my own experiences, my parents didn't tell us how they felt, right? Parents kind of became this like, oh, they don't really have feelings. Like they just kind of go about their day and then they come home and like, yeah, they might be in a weird mood, but there was no talking about emotions. Um, and I just, I really applaud you for that because kind of like I said in the beginning, it makes you more human. Like it makes you more human when you're able to have those emotional discussions with your kids about, yeah, I still fear things or not in this case, but like, I still get upset and I still get angry and I am okay with those emotions. And I think that's just really, I can imagine, even though they might not tell you that, that it's really impactful to your teenagers to hear you express yourself in that way and your husband as well because especially with men they're not really supposed to share their emotions about yeah. things they're supposed to kind of keep a level face and so I really applaud your husband for that because that that's the type of role model that kids need well thank you and, and it's funny because both of us come from very different upbringings my parents were, were more touchy-feely and, and and kind of you know all in show business Whereas my husband's were, they call each other by their first name. He called his parents by their first name. There was no touchy-feely. There was no sense of emotion. So it was very different. He did not want that raising his kids. And I came in with, this is what we do. And so <laughs> it just, just kind of worked out. <laughs> Fortunately, it worked out. Um, but yeah, that's, and, and sometimes it's, it's not always good emotions. It's not always like, you know, you know what? You really disappointed me in your behavior, you know? And I, I expected better from you, kiddo. You know, I need you to work harder at that, you know? So sometimes it's just, you know, this, it makes me feel sad that, that you lied or, you know, or that you weren't honest with me about that. So sometimes it's just emotions that are hard to hear, you know, but that's mom does feel. And it upsets me when you went against what I said was okay or not. Okay. So. I wonder, you have a very emotionally demanding job. Yes. You have, it's emotionally demanding just being a mother, <laughs> even this when things sad. are going great. <laughs> even when it's going this great, you're like, oh my God, where are my kids? What are they doing? Oh my kids, what's happening? Yeah. And, you know, what do you do to take care of yourself? So I, so I worked in palliative care at the VA for nine and a half years. And I watched people die, dying, dead, family members watching people die, dying. Dead. I watched all that, you know, nurses breaking down is too much. I have physicians coming to my office, like I'm having, you know, issues. Can you find me a therapist? Um, <clears throat> one of the things that I learned very quickly in that work, and, uh, and I'll actually take it back a little bit. I worked in Chicago when I was in graduate school, before I got into um, my doctoral program, um, I was um, a uh, counselor, like a, a case manager 
um, for a place called Chicago House. And it was in the 90s and it was with people with HIV and AIDS. Mm. And it was a bad time to have yes, it. I mean, it was just, oh my God. I, I didn't know what I was getting myself to, but I knew this was work. This was part of the work I wanted to do. And so this was kind of this, that stepping stone for graduate school. Like, this is the kind of work I want. And it was a position that came available to me through a family member who had a family member was like, hey, I think this would be a good fit for you. And I did it for a couple of years and burned out. Yep. Burned out. And um, so when I left that job, I was like, okay, so what did I learn from that? One is I really love working with people that are dealing with a lot of health challenges. Two, things I'm not going to do. I'm not going to be attending everybody's funeral anymore. <laughs> That's just a bad idea. <laughs> bad idea. Three, I'm not going to take my work home with me. Like, like these people's lives like really permeated with me. I mean, mm-hmm. it was, I was working, living with people whose families had pretty much disowned them. Mm-hmm. Um, they had issues. A lot of them had issues with drug challenges. A lot of them were um, either transgender, uh, gay, bisexual. There were um, just unfortunately dealing with with AIDS at that time. Just was it was a death sentence, and so and there was a lot of a lot of miseducation about you know getting AIDS, and just it was just bad. <laughs> it's just bad, and it was the '90s, you know, and so there was just so much that people did not know, um, and so I learned a lot about myself, about my beliefs and my values and what I was okay with and wasn't okay with. I learned a lot and developed a friend friend from that job that I still have to this day um, and developed a lot of friendships and and just got exposed to stuff I had never been exposed to before. And it was great, but I burned out. And so I left that and went into a very research job after that. I was like, okay, (laughs) but I knew, I knew, I knew I liked this work. So going Looking at that experience and then kind of coming into palliative care, I pretty much was really important for me to leave work at work. Like, I mean, as you sign out, it stays at work. Like that became extremely important to me. Um, I was able to connect with people and hear their stories and uh, empathize and be present in that moment. And as soon as I stepped away, it's like, I just kind of slate clean and like, okay, next. And I know it sounds cold, but it worked for me. And I was able to be present in that moment and understand and hear what they're saying. And, and that was, it was important for me to do that for them. And they felt it. And it was, and I felt, I feel like I was genuine in it because it really did matter to me, but I can't take that with me. It's not mine's to take. It's theirs. I'm here. I am a witness. I'm present for it. I'm here to support it and help people along through it, but it's not mine to take. And that became very important to me. I'm not an empath. I, 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 I you struggle and there'd be a little well in my heart occasionally, but it was not mine to take. It's your stuff. And, um, and so it was really important for me to, for that boundary to be something that I, I really set up for myself. So I wasn't bringing, not to say that there weren't stories that really tugged at you. You know, we had someone who was like 25, came in with lung cancer. I mean, it was just like, well, really, it was really hard. You know, so there are those situations that don't tug at you, but it was really important for me to leave that stuff. And then I come home and it's like, I gotta be on here. I gotta be on with these kids. I gotta get their homework done, you know? And 
Um, so that was real important. Like I need, this is, a, this, this is my world. Okay. I need to be able to function in this. I gotta leave that stuff there. That's what I do. That's not who I am. I'm a psychologist. That's what I do. It's not who I am as a person. It's not my whole identity. And so knowing that that's a slice of, of, of Stella. And so I leave that slice there and I have other slices that are important to me. I'm important to have relationships with my family, my extended family, you know, my family that lives in this house. I have close friendships that have gotten even more stronger and important to me as I've gotten older. And, you know, I like to exercise. I find that really important. Um, I'm really into trying to eat nutritionally. I just, I have a lot of uh, food uh, issues. So it's really important that I spend a lot of time on that. I find it fun to be able to cook different things. And so I have things in my life that matter so that it's not all about work. Because if it was, then I think it would be a different situation. I'd probably be burning out. <laughs> yeah, two and a half years. And I, I love what you said, that it's not mine to take. Mm-hmm. because I worked as a, an AIDS case manager for eight and a half years wow. myself. And then I went to work in hospice for another seven and a half years. And so I know of what you speak, right? <laughs> sure. And it's, it is challenging. And I never thought of that. And I wish I had, oh. you know, fortunately at the AIDS services organization I worked at, we had a staff support group and it was in the nineties. So again, I also know mm-hmm. what you're talking about there. It was an ugly, ugly time. And I didn't have that at the hospice though. Mm-hmm. I created something for the social workers, but it was never awesome. the same. It was never the same though. Cause we didn't, it was the kind yeah. of folks in the nineties that worked in AIDS. You said you've still got friends from there. So do I, I mean, I've got, I mean, it was a family because yeah. we all had a common caring and a common love and a common mm-hmm. cause, right? Mm-hmm. That somehow, you know, working in hospice, it's not, it wasn't the same. These people weren't being, you know, ostracized by their families, not being, right. you know, not people not wanting to touch them or drink it from their exactly. cups and all that kind of stuff. I love that though. I'm just going to say it again. It's not mine to take. And thank you for that because that is something that now I can take and not take. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I definitely, something else that kind of, um, it struck me. I was actually talking to Dina earlier today about, unfortunately, I feel like there's this big mentality of like hustling and you just hustle and hustle and work all the time and do it. And if you're not working, you're not productive and work-life balance is like a non-existent thing. Mm -hmm. I can't speak for your time, but for today. And uh, it's definitely something that I struggle with. Also having like my own business and feeling like I need to be constantly working. If I'm not working, then what am I doing? Right, right. And, you know, learning also working at home is that line becomes very hard of if you're at home, you're working, right? And like, I feel like what you just said of like that, that is your key to living a life without burnout that's fulfilled, that is balanced is so I'm hearing it. I'm listening. I'm resonating with it. I'm trying to receive it and take it in because like I say all the time on this podcast, I, this podcast for me is helping me become the woman that I want to be and grow into that person and grow into the type of mother and wife and friend that I want. And that piece that you just said, 
that's going to keep me from doing that. If I don't learn that balance, if I don't learn to leave it, be present for that moment and then go home. And, and I love what you said that that's what you do, but that's not who you are. And that very profound to me today. So I really appreciate that, that ingredient to keeping your pie whole. And for me, another North star, right. Moment. (laughs) Um, Something that I will pursue that I will never probably attain fully, but um, as long as I keep it in sight, it can help guide me towards the end of our podcast. We ask our guests, what is your secret ingredient? So I'm going to ask you that now. I don't know. I, I, I feel like it's, it's, you know, we talk about the word balance. It's like, it's, it, it balance is not always balance, right? It's always shifting and you're always having to kind of readjust things. And so, you know, I try to, I, I don't know if it's a secret ingredient, but one of the things I do with myself when I feel things are off is I kind of just do like a scan, like a body scan. I do this weird thing. It's, I call it, I call it my scan and how would I describe it? It's hard to describe it because I just do it, but I just kind of do this head to toe thing where I'm like, kind of, where am I at? Like, how's work? Is it, is there something going on with work? And I feel like that's manageable. Yeah. It's overwhelming at times. It's a lot, but I'm enjoying it. I'm, I'm going to keep doing it. Yeah. I'm going to keep doing this. this is going all right. You know, how's the marriage? Yeah. He was, he was fussing about something, but I still love him. This is good. Yeah. But we're going to stick with this. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I can do this. I love this man. All right. Yeah. But he, he annoys me, but I'm sure I know him too. No, we're good. <laughs> Check with the kids, like they're alive. They're kind of annoying right now. The 18 year old doesn't know what he was to do. The 16 year old isn't talking very much, but I hear him laughing with his friends. I know he's going to be okay. Yes. He smoked a joint the other day. Oh my gosh. Am I a bad parent? It's not the end of the world, Stella. He's going to experiment with something, you know, is, is he going to be okay? I think he's going to be okay. 16 year olds smoked joints before, right? That's okay. You know, so, and then, you know, how's mom and dad, you know, I checked on my mom, you know, and my dad's dealing with cancer right now. So my mom's helping him out and they're divorced. And she's like, you know, and I, so I just make sure I call her a couple of times. I would make sure mom, you're doing self-care. I am like, okay. And she puts herself first. That's where I got that from. That's good. So I kind of do this scan thing, you know, and, you know, friendships that haven't checked in with this friend in a while. How's she doing? You know, and how's my health and am I, how do I feel? You know, do I feel off and yeah, I'm hot, but that just kind of comes with the territory, you know, and and so I kind of do the scan thing occasionally where I, it's probably maybe more than occasion. Now that I think about it, I probably do it maybe once every couple of weeks where I kind of just do the scan to kind of see where things are off and where things need to be, where the equilibrium needs to happen again. Do I need to kind of adjust things? Do I, am I neglecting myself in some ways? Do I need to, as I tell my patient, do I need to put the face mask on myself before the plane lands, before I put it on my, everybody else? You know, do I... Am I, am I missing something? Do I need to give myself something or take a break or breathe or meditate or stretch or do, what do I need to do for myself? And so part of that scan is really about making sure I'm taking care of all of this. Um, but then this too, like, you know, do I need therapy? Am I having any challenges? You know, and so I, I just do the scan with myself. And, and if something's off, I tell myself it's okay because things are not supposed to be on all the time. Like, That'd be kind of boring. And, and that just doesn't exist. Like if someone says their, their, their stuff's always on, you're full of shit. Um, so I just do the scan thing with myself. And if there's areas that I'm like, that's a problem, 
like, okay, how do I want to approach that? Do I want to lie in a fetal position in the corner and avoid it? Or do I want to hit it straight on? And so I, then I kind of figure that out from there. I don't know if that's an ingredient. I just, I just know that that's a common thing that I use for myself um, just to kind of just see what's happening in, in my, in, in me and in, in my missing something um, and, and the things that revolve around me, right? the things that I don't necessarily have control over like other people, but the things that are evolving around me and my reaction, interaction with them, interaction with my job, interaction with my patients. And, you know, like if I have a, a patient that I'm just really struggling and I feel like I'm just, am I really helping this person? I feel like I'm not being the best therapist or they're just, really, you know, like then I like, you know what, talk to another peer and let them know I'm really struggling. Oh, turns out they're struggling, you know, like I had a patient where I just felt like, am I really helping her? Like she is really struggling. She is suffering and I can't fix this. And I, and not that I come into the work thinking I can fix it, but there's like, I have nothing. And so I just listen and I'm present and I hear her and I support her and she keeps coming back to therapy. And I feel like I'm not doing anything for her. And we have those moments where we're in the roles of helping people where we like question, like, how am I helping this person? And I scanned and I was like, that patient just really is, I'm really struggling. And so I reached out to her physician who, her physician who treats her and had referred her to me. And I mentioned, she's like, oh my gosh, still I feel the same way. I just feel like, you know, I have on every med possible. You tried everything. I just feel like we're just stuck and there's just nothing. And at times I feel like I just can't. And she just pulls at you. The patient keeps pulling at you. And I had to recognize that's what's happening here mm. because I feel like I just want to help because she's just in so much distress. And so I'd scan and I recognize that in my work area, that's where I'm just really struggling, you know, or um, with the kid, you know, like, okay, he doesn't want to go to college. Okay, so what do you want to do? We got to figure this out. I feel like that's the area we scan that like, okay, let's sit down and talk. And so I kind of do these scans with myself and check and see, and it's a lot of work. It's exhausting. I don't do it all the time, but I, but I, when I, when I need to do it, I know I need to do it. Like I, my mind's like, okay, it's still time for the scan. You know, it's not like a schedule thing. Like my phone doesn't go off. Like, okay, let's do the scan. Like, I'll just be like, I need to kind of scan what's going on. I'm feeling off. So So it sounds like you're pretty in tune with yourself and in your body and feel that unbalanced. Yes. Imbalance. Something. And sometimes you don't know what it is. That's why you have to scan. You don't know what it is. Like scan. something's going on. What's why, why do I feel off? Not feeling, not feeling happy, go not feeling myself. what's happening. And then you have to kind of go through all the things, which is exhausting. <laughs> but you're like, that's what that is. <laughs> and then I go, and some, I need a nap. Yeah. I need a nap. <laughs> like I know what that is. I actually love that. I love that. I'm going to try it. I, um, I love body scans. Like I just like grounding body scans. So I'm like, oh, this is something that I could definitely see as a helpful tool. So I would definitely consider it a secret ingredient because I have yet to hear it and I like it and I'm going to use it and I'm going to yeah. tell other people to use it now too. There you go. There you go. Our six listeners will know. Our six listeners <laughs> know about it. <laughs> so I just have to say thank you so much for agreeing, as I said, at the beginning to talk with us. It's been so much fun. I said to Rachel before you came on, I'm like, she's really funny. So <laughs> and I've laughed a lot. So it was true. I wasn't sometimes, lying. Uh, sometimes laughing is better than crying. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've had situations where I'm like, this is pretty shitty. <laughs> How can I make my laugh out of myself laugh out of this? What can I, what, 
fun. What, 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 what out of this can I take out of this and just look back on it and be like, okay, well, this is pretty messed up. You know, I, I, I do, I, I try to do that with myself um, because, you know, I, again, trying to take myself too seriously. Um, and so I find myself laughing at myself all the time. You know, menopause has been fascinating. You know, I have a good friend who's going through the same thing and she is just like, this is the worst thing. Aging sucks. This is worse. I'm like, girl, please. I said, there's pills for everything. Get a fan, you know, get some lubrication. I mean, seriously, the dryness is there. Just kind of take it and just run with it. I mean, there are worse things. They really, really are. <laughs> you know, she's just like, just how do you see it this way? I'm like, because I have no choice. You just kind of deal with it. And I got all the menopause symptoms, like all of them, all the ones that were, even the ones that are like one out of 10 million get this. I got them all. <laughs> When you're Googling Parkinson's because you're like, is that supposed to be normal? And it turns out it's a menopause symptom. Then you know you've gotten all the things. And so all I could do with that is just laugh and be like, okay, Stella, so how are we going to deal with this? Okay, let's, let's figure out how to deal with this, you know? So I think I think that um, that has helped me cope with this transition in my life. It's not going to be forever. It feels like it. it's not going to be forever. You just kind of go with it, go with the flow. And you just named another value, which is humor. Yeah. Yeah. Hum- yeah. You just like, that's another, that's another big one. Yes. Yep. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to us and answer our questions and for dropping some insight. And yeah, I really, I really enjoyed this conversation. I learned a lot as always, and I'm taking a lot with me. So I really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. You're very welcome. Yep. And I will not take it with me because it's not. I <laughs> <laughs> love that. Using it already. Um, Thank you right, so much, Stella. Stella. You're very welcome, ladies. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. And take uh, care of yourselves. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, my dear, another great podcast. Another great one. Another great guest who teaches us and learns with us. I think that's such a cool thing we do in this podcast is like everybody learns something. Yeah. It's like school all over again. Way better. But way better. Way better. Because it's not graded. Yeah. Until people and start reviewing all the classes. Our- all the classes are sitting at the lunch table together because we wouldn't be in the same grade. That's very true. That's very true. Mm-hmm. I guess we will, you're going to be gone. So we're going to be having a guest host, at least one guest host. Yeah. I don't know if she'll be joining us for one, two, or all three weeks that you're out gallivanting in the wide world. (laughs) Yep. Going and exploring the West coast. Fun. Well, enjoy that. Enjoy your time. And and thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for creating this this space. Bye-bye. Bye.